This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. A couple weeks back, we promised you Curtis Ebbesmeyer, the author of Flotsometrics, and for one reason or another, we didn't get to him last week, but we're proud to report that we have him for today's show. Dr. Ebbesmeyer is the author of Flotsometrics and the Floating World, How One Man's Obsession with Runaway Sneakers and Rubber Ducks Revolutionized Ocean Science. This is going to be a fun one. And that will be in our second segment today. But let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Because it's our belief that uh, you need to look back every now and again. Because even though we're not necessarily sure that George Santayana was correct, we do think the statement that those who do not know the past are condemned to repeat it may well be true. Our date in question is May 28th, and it was on May 28th in 1754 that a skirmish in the New World led, in essence, to the world going to war. The military skirmish involved the Virginia militia, led by Lieutenant Colonel George Washington. It defeated a French reconnaissance party in southwestern Pennsylvania and started what became known as the French and Indian War. It was the last and most important colonial conflict between British and American colonists and the French and American Indians. And the war soon spilled from the New World back to the Old. On this date in 1890, Elijah Jefferson Bond, Charles Kennard, and William Maupin, all of Baltimore, Maryland, filed a patent for the Ouija board. Twelve years later, Owen Wister publishes his novel, The Virginian, considered to be the first serious Western in American publishing. On May 28, 1961, the London Observer launched a campaign calling for the release of all persons imprisoned for peaceful expression of their beliefs. At specific issue was a group of students in Portugal who were jailed for toasting to, quote, freedom, unquote, in a restaurant. This led directly, I understand, to the foundation of Amnesty International. And finally, it was on this date, May 28, 1987, that Matthias Rust, a loosely wrapped 19-year-old amateur pilot from West Germany, took off from Helsinki, Finland, and followed the railway that led from Leningrad back to Moscow through 400 miles of supposedly heavily defended Soviet airspace. After buzzing the Kremlin a few times, Rust put down in the center of Moscow's Red Square. While Rust appeared somewhat inarticulate in explaining why he felt he needed to do this, the ramifications were astounding. Soviet uh, Premier Mikhail Gorbachev used the event to sack uh, most of the people he didn't like in the Soviet Air Force. And it did point out to a lot of people in the West that perhaps, uh, perhaps the Soviet military wasn't quite as fearsome and efficient as it was alleged to be. Of course, that idea never got very far, because that would have meant that we would have needed to spend a lot less on our military machine here in the West. Therefore, our intelligence analyses about that time in the late 80s was that the Soviet Union was still as strong as ever. Among the analysts who made those pronouncements were the current Defense Secretary, Robert Gates, and the recent Secretary of State, 
Condoleezza Rice. Oh, and how, in fact, did the Soviet Union do? Oh, it imploded four years later and collapsed in the street like an inebriate who downed a couple bottles of vodka. Robert Gates may have been wrong, but he's still Defense Secretary. Our quote of the day comes from George Bernard Shaw, who once said, A reasonable man changes himself to fit his environment. An unreasonable man tries to change his environment to fit him. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Our quip of the day comes from wine critic Jane McQuitty, who was examining some of the wine industry's new canned products, which are an effort to reduce its carbon footprint by using lighter packaging. The wine critic described the product as, quote, sweaty, stomach-churningly tinny, the worst wines I've tasted so far this year. Well, a commendable effort, but it looks like that one needs to go back to the drawing board. And we have this recent comment uh, from Jimmy Fallon from Late Night Television, who noted that uh, Paula Abdul's in the news again. Paula had the courage to reveal that she's been addicted to prescription painkillers for the past 12 years. And to Paula, I'd just like to say, we knew. Our statistic of the day is the, uh, the strange assertion being made uh, by the Associated Press, article by Hope Yen and Emily Wagster-Pettis, that America may have experienced a mysterious birth rate plunge which foreshadowed our financial meltdown. The net rate birth rate increased only 0.9% between July 07 and July 08, which was a sharp drop from the record-setting 2.7% growth for the preceding year. Statisticians are saying the numbers hint at the tantalizing notion that America's family planners outperformed its financial planners in predicting the rough economic times. Of course, the question is, wouldn't a coin flip <laughs> do better than America's financial planners? It's a curious question from Ms. Yen and Ms. Pettis. Uh, there didn't seem to be any outwardly clear signs of trouble around the corner uh, during that interim. Uh, apparently, the stock market was reaching a peak of 14000 Unemployment was relatively flat. But they note, on the other hand, housing prices were near their peak, and the pressure on young families uh, was high. And in hindsight, some banking failures later identified as early signs of the recession were occurring as early as summer 07. And if you have some insights into that matter, please uh, send us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We'd like, to, we'd like to hear some analysis of that. All right, and our word of the day is zeitgeist, which is a word that English has borrowed from the German and means the general trend of thought and feeling of an era. Perhaps the spirit of the times might be another, uh, another way to describe it. Yes, and contrary to popular belief, this is not a noisy ghost. That is a poltergeist, which we're sure Hans Holzer's investigating now. Good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for miracles. After a Texas couple reported finding a Cheetos cheese snack that bears an uncanny resemblance to Jesus Christ. 
Apparently, Dan and Sarah Bell said they would see what they can get for their Jesus on eBay. No, folks, I'm just reading the copy, not making anything up. Commented Dan Bell about their prospects on eBay. If it's only 25 cents, we're just going to eat it. You know, and that's exactly how I feel about this Triscuit I located, which bears an uncanny resemblance to Harpo Marx. So, heck with it. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Chinese sexual liberation. When it was revealed that China's first theme park devoted to sex has been demolished just weeks before it was due to open. Loveland was going to feature giant models of genitals, workshops on sex techniques, and educational displays about condom use. Lu Xiaoqing, the developer of the facility, said he got the idea for the venture after visiting a popular sex park in South Korea. The locals began complaining when they saw the naked statues going up, and officials ordered the site demolished. Sex is still a taboo subject in much of China, where authorities routinely censor sex scenes from foreign films and books. And finally, it was an ugly week uh, last week for bodybuilding, after a doping official showed up to do steroid tests at the Belgian Bodybuilding Championship, only to find that all 20 muscled competitors grabbed their gear and ran out the door. I have never seen anything like it, said doping official Hans Kuhlman. And so far as we know, Hans Kuhlman has never actually visited uh, our state capital here in Sacramento. And speaking of our governor, he has uh, said that he believes the issue of gay marriage will be back. This in the wake of the California Supreme Court backing up the legality of Proposition 8, which restricts marriage in California to a union between a man and a woman. It appears to this correspondent that the sometimes rabid opponents of Proposition 8 were willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater in their appeal, which basically attempted to invalidate uh, the California process of initiatives. To me, that seems like the win-at-any-cost kind of strategy employed by the Republicans in election 2000. But that, of course, is my personal opinion and in no way reflects necessarily that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. But commenting on this case, uh, University of California Davis Law Professor Vikram Amar said... If the justice's hands weren't tied, at the very least, they were taped together. The challenge to Proposition 8 had some raw justice behind it, but it didn't have much legal support. Writing in the B, columnist Marcos Breton said, No matter what happened in court this week, gay marriage will be the law in California one day. At least that's what many gay marriage proponents were saying after the state Supreme Court ruling. He quoted State Senate President Pro Tem Daryl Steinberg as saying, History shows us that prejudice and inequality diminish with time and struggle, and so it will be in the case with marriage freedom. Commented Breton, Steinberg expresses nice sentiments, but that doesn't make him right. Gay marriage is like no other civil rights struggle in this country because it shakes up old political assumptions and divides friends and family. The gay marriage opponents are not ready to lay down their arms, and they firmly reject the contention that their opposition is rooted in prejudice, and they disagree that a younger, more progressive voter base inevitably will step up to make same-sex marriage the law. Anyway, the article goes on to talk about how there will be challenges, and uh, asking the question to gay marriage advocates, how badly do you want it? 
Closing with, if the answer is a campaign of political rhetoric about inevitability, gay marriage will never become law in California. The other side is too strong for that. And I must say that I'm, I'm genuinely depressed at the amount of political capital that may be spent on, on this initiative. I think everybody agrees that the same rights need to be extended to gay couples as to married couples, but the second you introduce the M word and insist that it has to be a marriage like other marriages, you're just gonna hit a brick wall. It's a topic we'll return to. Here's a gay rights item that, uh, that caught my eye. Apparently, Mariela Castro, the daughter of President Raul Castro, led hundreds of Cubans in a street dance a couple weeks back to promote gay rights. Said Mariela, we're calling on the Cuban people to participate so the revolution can be deeper and include all the needs of the human beings. Ms. Castro is the director of the Cuban National Center for Sex Education. Helps that dad's the president. A married mother of two, she's an outspoken advocate for gay and transgender issues who has worked to change Cuban attitudes toward homosexuality. In the 1960s, just after Fidel Castro came to power in a communist revolution, his regime sent gays to work camps. It was noted that homosexuality was decriminalized in 1979, although discrimination is still widespread. And here's a rather nice story. It turns out that Titanic stars Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, along with director James Cameron, donated a couple weeks ago tens of thousands of dollars to the last remaining survivor of the doomed ocean liner. Apparently, the stars learned that 98-year-old Milvina Dean, who was nine weeks old when she was rescued from the Titanic, was having trouble paying her nursing home bills. So the stars and director decided to chip in, and, and we applaud their efforts. All right, also from the good news file, we have the fact that a clinical trial indeed found that ginger can reduce nausea from chemotherapy. Evidently, researchers used a large randomized clinical trial to discover that simply adding a teaspoon of ginger to food consumed in the days before, during, and after chemotherapy can reduce the often debilitating side effects of nausea and vomiting. Ginger's often been a folk remedy for nausea, and it's uh, nice to know that it it genuinely works. And uh, speaking of food, I just, I love this item. Apparently a cow named Molly was, uh, was being delivered to a slaughterhouse in Queens, New York, bolted from her trailer. And after leading police and animal control officers on a street chase, she was finally captured and placed in a city animal shelter. When the cow's owner agreed to give up any claim on the animal, it was turned over to Rex Farr, who runs an organic farm and animal sanctuary. So I guess the lesson in that is never give up. Let's talk a little more about food. Michael Pollan is returning to Sacramento. He'll be in Sacramento as part of the California Lecture Series, June 10th at 7.30 p.m. at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Sacramento. We had the pleasure of interviewing the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, and we refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com. Bob Casper, writing in the Baltimore Sun, as repeated in the Sacramento Bee, did list uh, some of Pollen's simple rules for, for food, which can be summarized as, 
Avoid food products that contain ingredients that are unfamiliar, unpronounceable, more than five in number, or include high fructose corn syrup. Avoid products that make health claims. Shop in the peripheries of the supermarket where the fresh fruit is, avoiding the middle where the processed food resides. Eat meals, not snacks. Eat plants, especially leaves. And don't get your fuel from the same place your car gets its gas. <laughs> Boy, I think that the rise of the Mini Mart has been, uh, has, has been the cause of American obesity to, to no small degree. Anyway, we're certainly going to be there, and, uh, and you might want to consider uh, giving Michael Pollan a listen. He's always, uh, always compelling. Great article, too, in yesterday's Sacramento Bee Food and Wine section about uh, more about some of the local food movement. Actually, it was more specifically about someone named Kimberly Morales, who uh, has a website, poorgirleatswell.com, which chronicles her adventures in eating cheaply. Of course, eating locally is bound to be a part of that. And I was somewhat horrified to read in the Green Day section of the Sacramento News and Review, May 14th issue, about the uh, threat to the Portuguese cork industry. Note of the article by Alastair Bland, uh, synthetic corks and aluminum screw tops may spell the end for Portugal's cork oak forests. Alastair notes that the picturesque cork oak has been an integral part of the landscape and the winemaking industry for centuries. But uh, while the stately trees are still growing across 5 million acres of arid countryside, the forest could become commercially obsolete within a decade. Portugal produces 55% of the world's corks, and the industry employs more than 100,000 people. There are numerous uh, cork oaks strewn about the UC Davis campus. Cork is a renewable resource for some reason I've never understood. You can strip the bark, which it's just the cork, off the outside of one of these trees, and it just grows back. When I uh, went on a trip to Portugal as a kid, we stopped at a cork uh, forest, and I went out and asked the workmen about, uh, about their work, and the guy stripped me off a big chunk and handed it to me, which, which I still have. Trouble with cork is uh, it basically can render about 5% of the wine bottles which are stoppered with it um, with a bit of an unpleasant flavor. Actually, looking down at the article, it's more like 3%, but still, it's a significant number. The article notes that it seems assured that high-end producers of wine are going to continue to rely upon uh, the traditional cork. On the other hand, the World Wildlife Fund uh, suspects that by 2015, natural corks might seal as few as 5% of wine bottles. Well, we certainly don't want to see the the cork uh, forests um, in Europe um, succumb to neglect, disease, and fire, which of course is possible if if cork fell in value as a commodity. And uh, we're going to have to bring Alistair Bland on this program to talk about uh, Green Days and and this article in particular. That's on our to-do list. Another guy we need to get on this program we've talked about doing for a long time is Dr. David Kessler from UC San Francisco. As an FDA commissioner under the first George Bush and Bill Clinton, Dr. Kessler crusaded against the tobacco companies and their conspiracy to keep smokers hooked. In a new book, The End of Overeating, as reviewed in New Scientist magazine, uh, Kessler lays out the science behind the obesity epidemic noting that modern foods have become entirely too palatable. They're rich in fat and sugar, and they overstimulate the brain's reward pathways, conditioning us to seek more and more. Noting that manufacturers of processed foods and major restaurant chains all exploit this neurologic vulnerability by layering fat and sugar into foods to create 
craveability. Wrote Kessler, where traditional cuisine is made to satisfy, North American industrial food is made to stimulate. Boy, and I have no doubt he's correct about this habit-forming aspect of, of modern food, which is carefully engineered into the product. we got to bring David Kessler on the program, where we'll see what we can do about that. All right, a couple related items as we close the first segment here. Speaking of bad habits, it turns out that naltrexone, an anti-addiction drug, also reduces the urge to steal in kleptomaniacs, according to a study from the University of Minnesota. And certainly this is going to have some role in uh, the treatment of addiction, which, which basically, no, much, no matter what you're talking about in the way of addiction, is an inability to control, a compulsion to reuse something or redo something, reeat something. This is bound to have some application in the field of addiction control and probably weight management, uh, and, uh, you know, the treatment of, of, of drug addiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When our reward centers in our brains dictate our behavior, that's, that's where we get into trouble, whether it's you know, overeating, uh, fatty food, or gambling at the casino, or smoking, or drinking, or using drugs. I think we'll close, from <laughs> I think we'll close with a commentary from a man named Chris Berg, who wrote in Australia about their slot machines. Wrote Mr. Berg, Is there any form of entertainment more reviled than the pokies? referring in Australian slang to the video poker slot machines, which are being blamed for all manner of social ills, adding, not even cigarettes cop as much flack. And this is his defense. The vast majority of poker machine players, of course, are not problem gamblers, but simply regular people enjoying a pastime no more mindless than watching television. Boy, there's a pregnant phrase. He goes on, it's easy to mock those who spend Saturday night's pulling a lever in a suburban pub, their vacant look, their robotically repetitive movements, their apparent joylessness. But they aren't harming anyone. He goes on, There's something a bit distasteful about the passion with which the great and good declare their anti-pokies views. It looks especially like paternalistic disdain for the entertainment choices of the working class. Anti-gambling scolds claim that gamblers lose $2.4 billion a year to the pokies. But they would never say that money spent on movies or theater tickets is lost. It's simply a matter of taste. So hold your high-minded criticism. Even if you don't enjoy the pokies, others do. Man, I really, I, 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 don't know, I don't know how serious he is about this, but I love the phrase, their robotically repetitive movements, their apparent joylessness. Anyone who's ever been to a casino and watched people that are just standing in front of one of those machines pushing buttons? Boy. Well, the word robot comes to mind. As we've talked about on this program, it's people who are spending their welfare check and their paychecks uh, on, uh, on gambling, um, well, they do society a lot of harm, not the least of which to their heirs, their children, to those who depend upon them to bring home some money for family use. Final quick item, according to Business Week, consumers spent $1.6 billion less in casinos last year than the $34.1 billion they dropped the year before. This is the first decline in at least a decade in casino intake. It's said that smoking bans in Colorado and Illinois reduced the casino's take in those two states. Anyway, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll come back and talk a bit about how things float around the world's oceans. Said if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. 
You got to know 